started. I notice there are some guests with us today. I'd like to just point you to your service folder, and if you'd like to use the gold insert as we study God's Word together, um, even uh, for our members, uh, I think we're going to get into the habit of having a few more fill-in-the-blanks as uh, God has wired us to learn better when we engage a few different senses, so um, there will be that opportunity to. I might miss one or two, so I promised, um, I hope I don't, but I can't promise that I won't, but um, I'm going to try to hit them today. So waiting um, is not a very easy thing to do, whether you're waiting for carrots to grow or whatever it might be, waiting for oatmeal from your dad, whatever it might be. Um, in fact, waiting is one of the reasons why um, getting my car fixed is one of the absolute least favorite things in all the world. It's just one reason of many uh, why I don't like it. Um, you go to the auto repair store, and then basically they take away your freedom right away by the words, give me your keys, all right? And now you're stuck. And you are 100% dependent on how quickly they work in order to get your freedom back, right? And in that meantime, you're just left to wait. And the thing is, waiting at an auto repair store is not like the greatest place in the world to wait. Um, at least the ones that I go to, usually you're sitting close enough to the customer service counter that it seems inevitably I'm always, as much as I try not to, almost forced to listen to some disgruntled customer argue with a uh, defensive employee, and I just wishing that I didn't have to, to listen to this. Um, and, and then the chairs, I mean, they've got to be the most, they must shop at the most uncomfortable furniture store ever, those usually black, uncomfortable chairs. The magazines are like from five years ago, all ripped up and crinkled. And then the amenities, um, you know, Day-old coffee and the, the smell of rubber tires, because they're all on the wall behind you, is not exactly five-star waiting room amenities, right? So you get to a certain point where, because of the environment, and just because waiting stinks, that when you've been waiting longer than what you've expected, at least if you're me, you start to get up like every five minutes and to see if your car is done, and if it's still up in the air, or if it's down, or if the hood's still up, or why haven't they pulled it around to the front yet, and you're laser-focused on the customer service desk, waiting for the guy to say, hey, Mr. Bloomer, we have your keys. It's, you've been delivered <laughs> from your waiting. Well, I think that you know, even if you've never waited at a car, store, car shop, you know what it means and feels like to wait, because actually that whole incident experience is a microcosm of your life. In fact, I would guess there are fewer days in your life where you weren't waiting for something than there are that you were, that we almost always in almost every season of life find ourselves, this is the first fill-in, find ourselves in seasons of waiting, waiting to graduate, waiting for the right job, waiting for a spouse, waiting for kids, waiting to get out of debt, waiting for retirement. And the list goes on and on and on. And, and when we're waiting for something, it's like me tired of waiting at the, the car shop, that you get zeroed in on deliverance. And deliverance for me at the car store is that guy at the customer service counter getting my keys, right? And I become 
hyper-focused on him and on deliverance? And is it wrong or bad when you're waiting to look forward to being delivered? No. But here's what I think happens. That we get so intent on the next step and on being delivered from our waiting that we miss the time that we're in. That we're waiting so much for what we're hoping for or what we're praying for that we forget that God has a purpose for today. That in fact, the next uh, fill-in, God has a plan and a purpose for our seasons of waiting. It's not wrong to look forward to God ending your waiting. But what God doesn't want us to do is to waste today because we feel we can't really live or be happy until our waiting is over. That God is wanting in those seasons of waiting to do something in us and for us and maybe even sometimes through us. And all of this perfectly connects with our series that we're starting today. Because Moses came onto the scene when God's people, that would be the Jewish nation, were in a long, long time of waiting. They were waiting for deliverance. Deliverance from Egypt and deliverance from other, some other things too that we're going to be taking a look at it just in just a moment. But as Moses came onto the scene, that was the context that he came into. And today, as we begin our study, we're going to see that we have some direction for how do we handle those seasons of waiting, and where do we find the peace when we don't know (laughs) when's the carrot going to grow, when's the car going to be done, when's the season of waiting going to be over. So before we get started today, and what's going to make my message just a little bit longer, is that there's just some needed background to Moses' life that we're going to hit this very first week. So Moses came onto the scene about 400 years um, after the Jews had moved to Egypt. And for some of you, you right away remember why the Jews were in Egypt. For others of you, you may not have any idea. So 400 years before Moses... There was this huge famine, and one of the Jews, a man named Joseph, because God allowed him to interpret some dreams for Pharaoh in Egypt, he rose or ascended to the second most powerful man in Egypt. And through Joseph, the Jews, his family, and this is a long story, we had a whole series on Joseph a few years ago, through Joseph, his people, the Jews, were able to find a home in Egypt. Well, 400 years goes by, and everyone in Egypt's forgotten about Joseph, forgotten about what he did for Egypt, and in reality had really not understood at all why the Jews were in Egypt in the first place. And Pharaoh sees this growing nation or culture, and he sees it as being a bad thing for his power and his empire. And so what he's trying to do is to stop their growth. And you read in Exodus chapter 1, the first thing he did was turn all of the uh, Jews into slaves. He took away their freedom, put them into hard labor, hoping that that would stunt the nation's growth. Exodus 1 records that through it, 
God actually allowed the Jews to grow even quicker. So that didn't work. So then Pharaoh had an even more cruel and horrible plan B. And we find it in verse 22 of Exodus chapter 1. Um, it says, Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy, every Jewish boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. I mean, can you think of anything worse, more horrible, more vicious than what Pharaoh was trying to do to Israel? And yet God still, even through this horrible thing, and believe me, there were many Jewish boys that died through this, he allowed blessing upon his people. In fact, when Moses would eventually lead uh, the Jews out of Egypt, when they came at the time of Joseph to Egypt, the number of Jews was 70 in the family. When they left, through God's blessing, even amidst all of this, two million. They had grown to two million. And yet, even with all of those people, they were left to wait on the Lord. The reason being, they had not the power to overcome Pharaoh. They were like me, waiting at the car store again. It's kind of out of my hands. They would have to wait on God's deliverance and on God's timing. And would God even come? Would, what sort of things did they have to hold on to? Well, it's interesting. Back in Genesis chapter 15, there's this amazing promise that God gave hundreds of years before even Joseph. When God told Abraham, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. Um, how was that fulfilled? What country? Egypt, right? They will be enslaved. That happened. Mistreated for 400 years. How long was it between Joseph and Moses, did I say? Wow, God has a plan, doesn't he? But I will punish the nation they serve, that is, the Egyptians, as slaves, and... And here's the deliverance part. Afterward, they, my people, your ancestors, Abraham, will come out of Egypt with great possessions. What an amazing plan God had. And so the Jews waiting on the Lord was not without hope. They had promises, just as you have promises, about what God's going to do and how he's going to be in your life as well. But as we wait on his timing, we don't always know when the deliverance is going to come. The Jews are waiting for deliverance from Egypt, deliverance into the promised land, all right? We are waiting sometimes for deliverance from whatever we're waiting for, and ultimately deliverance to heaven. So, in your season of waiting... What direction does God give for how we should act about what we should do? And today, through this very first part of Moses' life, I think he gives us two directives that are going to be kind of opposite of each other. And what I want you to do as you listen to them is to learn as best as you can with God's help is to live in the middle of these two directives that we'll see from the beginning of Moses' life. So we turn to Exodus chapter 2, verse 1. This is the, the birth of Moses. Now, a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, 
we know from later in Exodus that the name of the man, that is Moses' dad, is Amram, and the name of the woman um, is even a, a more difficult, crazy name, Yochebed, all right? And so when I say, I'm going to be saying Yochebed a number of times to get today, um, I may not say it the same way every time, I'm going to try, um, but that is Moses' mother, okay? So a man, Amram, from the house of Levi, married Yochebed, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw he was a fine child. Now, that could be said about every single mother here, right? You have a baby, man, he or she is a fine child, right? Every mother thinks their child is a fine child, right? There was more to it than that. And the reason we know that is because this word doesn't just mean good-looking or pretty. We don't know exactly what was meant, but it seems almost certain that it was more than just Moses was a good-looking child. That Yochebed, whether it be that God told her that there was something special about her son, or whether she just in some other way knew that this child was special, she noticed. Maybe she even knew that this was the one that would deliver God's people. We don't know for sure, but it was more than just good-looking especially when you turn to Hebrews as it sort of is a commentary years later. It says, by faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw, that is the parents, that he was no ordinary child. Again, we don't know what they saw in him, but they saw something special. Maybe, maybe they saw that he would be the, the one who would help deliver Israel from Egypt. And so as Yochebed sees this no ordinary child, I suppose as she's waiting on deliverance, she could have just said, you know what, Lord, it's here in your hands. I'm going to do what I'm commanded to do by, by the Egyptians and, and threw her baby in the Nile like she was supposed to. But she didn't. She, in time of waiting on God, took action. Next verse. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, um, I mean, three months is pretty amazing. You know, newborns, they don't make any noise. Imagine how difficult it would have been for her to hide this little baby for three months. She knew she wouldn't be able to do it forever. So then when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him, coated it with tar and pitch, and then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. For most of my life, when I heard this lesson in Sunday school or at school, I pictured Moses' mom taking the baby, putting it in the basket, and just kind of pushing the basket out into the currents of the Nile, and that it then just kind of ended up kind of floating to some reeds and just kind of magically stopped there. Um, I visioned it almost like some guy stranded in a boat takes a bottle with a note in it and you know, throws it into the ocean and just kind of lets see where it goes. But that's not what it says, does it? This wasn't just some accident about where Moses ended up. 
Yes, Jochebed was in a season of waiting on the Lord's deliverance, but she saw, because she noticed this was a fine child, an ordinary child, that there were some things maybe she could do, not to help God, but to be God's instrument and God's servant. And so you can imagine, as any mom would do, I know I can't keep this child forever. What's going to be my plan? How can I maybe help there be a possibility for his freedom, for him to stay alive? And she probably began to to look at the Nile and who would come to the Nile and when and where. And she devised a plan. She took action. And she strategically placed Moses among some reeds. And it's no accident then, the next verse, that his sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. His sister, that is Moses' sister, was probably about 10 years old. Her name's Miriam. When you read the whole section, you you recognize this wasn't an accident either. I mean, what 10-year-old just decides to, to watch from a distance, right? And, and then what she does next, too, is not something a 10-year-old would do on their own, more than likely, but that probably Jochebed said, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to set Moses in the reeds right here where Pharaoh's daughter usually bathes, and then Miriam, you're going to stand over here, and then what? Verse 5, then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She, that is Pharaoh's daughter, saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Guess what happens next? Verse 7, I'll tell you. Then Moses' sister, Miriam, asked Pharaoh's daughter, (laughs) kind of ironic, huh? I mean, this just was all by accident, huh? No. Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women, I wonder who she'd choose, to nurse the baby for you? Now, I suppose Miriam, being about 10, could have thought to stand there and could have thought exactly what question would have been a good question to ask, and that is, but I think it's far more likely that Jochebed, in her season of waiting for deliverance, saw that Moses was a no ordinary child and thought about not how can I help God accomplish his purposes, but how can I be his instrument. And he took, she took action and planned and used the gifts and the opportunities that God gave her in her season of waiting. She found, fill in the right time, the right place, the right thing to say, but then she, next fill in, trusted God for the results. Could she have ever guessed or known for sure exactly what would happen? She was hoping. She was praying in her season of waiting. We pray during our season of waiting. She didn't know for sure. But she did what she could. And then she trusted God in his wisdom and his plan. So what did happen? (laughs) Yes, go, Pharaoh's daughter answered. And the girl went and got (laughs) the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, Yochebed. And uh, 
I like this part, I will pay you. That'd be nice, mothers, huh? Not only do you take care of your child, but God worked it out that she actually got paid to take care of her child. Not in a million years, I'm guessing, would Yochebed have thought that it would have gone this well, this perfectly. But guess, again, who was in charge? Not Yochebed. She did what she could, but she trusted God to do what only he could. And God worked it out. And in Yochebed, and in this deliverance, so to speak, of Moses, and as they were waiting for deliverance from Egypt, I think we see a couple things that are so, so important for us during our seasons of waiting. The first one is that there are things that we can do. Letter A, ask yourself, what can I do? In every season of waiting, there are opportunities to follow God's direction and do what he's directed us to do. What does it mean to wait on the Lord? You know what it doesn't mean? It doesn't mean purely praying and just kind of sitting around waiting for some vision, okay? Or whatever it might be. It includes praying, but it also includes using the opportunities, just like Yochebed did, that God puts before you. I think sometimes we get the wrong idea about waiting on the Lord, that we just sit around waiting for a miracle. It's kind of like the, the guy who's waiting to be saved in the middle of the ocean, right? And he wants God to miraculously save him, and, and here comes a boat who wants to save him, and the guy says, you know, I don't need you, I'm waiting on the Lord, Right? God puts things into our paths, opportunities, but sometimes we've ignored them. Or sometimes in our spiritual laziness or apathy, it's too hard to work. For instance, maybe some of you here today are, are, are really waiting for your marriage to be even better or just good. And we're waiting and we're waiting and I think some of the questions that we can ask ourselves, first of all, it's good to pray about that, but some of the questions to ask yourself is, so as you wait, where, what place does God have? Is he an add-on when we can fit him in, or is our entire marriage and life centered on him and everything else are details? Some of us maybe are waiting for the right man or woman to come into our life with godly morals and the faith life that um, we are really looking for in someone that we might want to be married to. And it's good to wait on the Lord, and it's good to pray about that. But here's a question that I would ask. So where are you looking for these people? You say you run into all the wrong people. Where are you looking? Maybe that's part of the problem, right? There are things that we can do. Or how about um, financial issues? And we feel maybe that we never quite have enough or we never quite can get out of debt. It's good to wait on the Lord. It's, it's good to pray about that. Keep doing that. But I think there's questions that we can ask. What can I do? How am I using the resources God has already given me? Are there ways that we can better make use of them or things that we can cut back on? And 
The examples go on and on and on, but I think you get the point. That as we wait on the Lord, it begins with prayer, but it also includes doing those things that we can do. Taking advantage of opportunities and, and being instruments because sometimes, maybe, the reason we're waiting to be delivered is because God just might be waiting on us. He's working something in us during our season of waiting, and he's waiting on us to be his instrument. Now, clearly there's always the danger of going too far in the other direction. I don't want you to come away from today thinking that the only reason I, I'm waiting right now is because I, I haven't, you know, uh, tied up the bootstraps and, and, you know, I need to do it. This is where I say there are two truths, and we need to live in the middle. On the flip side is an arrogance that comes with, if there's something that I want, then I just need to go get it. That if I, if I, if I want a new job, it's up to me. That everything's up to me. And, and when we go too far on that end, we run into problems as well. We need to live in the middle, where we do what we can do faithfully. But we trust God to, to do that which only he can do. And when that happens, when you live in the middle, the words of David become true. As he wrote in Psalm 37, he says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. The stillness that David is talking about is not the stillness of the body and the hands and the feet. It's the, the still, quiet heart the still trusting mind and heart that knows what Yochebed knew, that she's going to do what she can do, but that God ultimately has a plan. And God did, didn't he? He did. She didn't know how everything was going to work. She noticed that he was no ordinary child. But what God's plan for deliverance was, she wasn't sure. And what she did is she left that to him. She left the plan to the one who is in charge of the plan. And God delivered Moses. God delivered Egypt, just as he had promised to Abraham hundreds of years before. And all of this is not really about Moses and the Israelites getting out of Egypt anyway. You know who this whole deliverance series is about? You know the whole story and life of Moses is about? It's about you. This is your story. Because it is only through Moses and the deliverance of God's people from Egypt that God would take care of his people, would preserve, that was the word I'm looking for, preserve his people so that eventually a savior would come to deliver us. As we close, I, I want to kind of give you a takeaway that you can kind of think about as, as you straddle these two truths about your season of waiting and I'd really encourage you to kind of live in the middle. It's kind of like at uh, Wild Mountain in, in uh, Taylor's Falls. Um, they have this alpine slide, which seems like an accident waiting to happen. Um, there's this little cart, and you sit on it, and the only thing you have to hold on to is this little 
break. And, uh, you know, it can be quite dangerous. You get going faster than you think, and sometimes you can, you know, butt up and scrape yourself against uh, one side or the other. And the best place to be on this slide is in the middle. You get too far over in one direction, you hurt yourself. You get far, too far over in the other direction, you hurt yourself or slow down. And, and what I'd like you to do as, as we go through seasons of waiting and what do I do and how do I stay balanced, I'd encourage you, just like on this slide, to, to live in the middle and to balance in your mind every day this tension between two truths and to just to follow these two things that God gives us. That as you face your season of waiting, even if you don't know the future, which you don't, just faithfully do what you can do. Find comfort in knowing that you aren't neglecting something, that you're following God's truth, and just faithfully do what you can do. Like Ilkabed, she did what she could do. Did she know how it would turn out? No. So what else did she do? She trusted then God to do what only he could do. Would it be purely Yochebed who would be the one or the reason why Moses would be delivered and not killed? <laughs> no. I mean, a million different things could have happened that day that he was, Moses was set in the reeds. Ultimately, God had a plan and her comfort, the reason why she was able to be still was because she trusted God to do what only he could do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as you know, because you know all things and you, you know the things we go through, seasons of waiting are not easy. We thank you for examples from the Bible of, of people who endured seasons of, of waiting, and we thank you for the, the godly example of Yochebed today. Lord, as, as we hear that, remind us that you have a plan for deliverance of us, whether that be from an earthly season of waiting, but ultimately deliverance from sin, death, and hell. And now as we live each day, help us to remember those two things, to remember to faithfully do what we can do, but then to trust you to do what only you can do and bring us peace and stillness through that. We also